Lord, may your word only be spoken, and may your word only be heard. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who is your word to us. Amen. Wake up, dead man. Wake up, dead man. Wake up, Joanne. Wake up, Abdul Rahman. Wake up, Virginia, Afsana, Andrew, Salima. Wake up, Glenn. Wake up, Mr. Rumsfeld. Wake up, Mr. Al-Sadr. Wake up, Mr. Cheney, Mr. Karzai, Mr. Bush, Mr. Al-Maliki. Wake up, Mr. Obama. Wake up, Jesus. The version of this song that you just heard was recorded on September 1, 2001, concert in, at Slane Castle in Dublin, a few days after Bono buried his father, Bob Hewson. And every time I listen to the song, I again wonder who the dead man is that Bono wishes to have wake up. Is it his father? Is it Jesus who seems absent, whose hands might not be free to help? Is it Bono himself? As I've lived with this song over the last several weeks, it seemed to me that it captures something of the lament appropriate for this day. The events of 9-11 and the U.S. response are directly implicated in the deaths of at least 160,000 people, probably many, many more. And how many families are saying, wake up, father, wake up, mother, wake up, son, daughter, sister, brother? How many families are begging God to wake up and pay attention? Today is a complex day. It's a day of contested narratives, a day freighted with meaning related to patriotism, a patriotism that's infused with the language of faith, a day that calls us to stop and reflect on what it means to be followers of Jesus. I speak today as an outsider who is now at some level an insider. I'm an immigrant. And Arlie and I are making our financial contributions to the costs of the current wars. So this is, at some level, my story for as long as I am living here. But as a Canadian, Canadian, I am also not without complicity in the aftermath. While my other government stayed out of Iraq for reasons of justified skepticism, it committed wholeheartedly to the war in Afghanistan. So I stand in the midst of this complexity, and I stand in front of today's texts, conscious that the preacher's task is to speak the word of God, which is to speak a word of hope to this body, living in this place, in this time, in the midst of this empire in decline. So I turn to Genesis. Today's story ends the Joseph cycle of stories and sets the background to the story of Moses and the liberation from bondage. But who would have expected bondage to be the outcome of the Joseph story? Joseph, the youngest son, the favored son. Joseph rising to ever greater heights of power after each setback. Joseph at the pinnacle of power in the greatest empire of his time. Joseph, favored by God, taken by God from the pit to a place where he could rescue his family. Joseph, reconciled to his brothers after years of pain, dysfunction, and separation. But also Joseph, 
the child of generations of dysfunction. Remember the near sacrifices of Isaac, Hagar, and Ishmael, the two sons only reconciled when they buried their father. Remember Jacob and Esau, torn apart by the machinations of Rebekah and Jacob. Remember Joseph's own arrogance when he spoke of his dreams. We have a tendency to read this story quite unambiguously. The brothers failed to see that God was with Joseph, but God used the evil done by the brothers to ensure the survival of the family. But let's recall some earlier events. Pharaoh dreamed of seven healthy cows consumed by seven starving cows, seven healthy ears of corn consumed by seven dying ears. And Joseph interprets the dream as a prediction of famine, but then takes a step not required by the dream. He proposes that Pharaoh centralize ownership of food, taking one-fifth of it into storage. The proposal, we are told, pleased Pharaoh. Are we surprised? This was, after all, empire. Shockingly, we are told that Joseph is given almost the full power. Oh, sorry. We are told that Joseph gathered up all the food in the land. All. And we are told that Joseph is given almost the full power of Pharaoh. Joseph became a despot. Or was he already one? The favored younger son who lorded it over his brothers. Rabbis Arthur Waskow and Phyllis Berman in their book, Freedom Journeys, go a step further. They wonder if the dream actually said that the famine was inevitable. Note that Joseph says that the interpretation of the dream required him to consult with God. But in the text as we have it, he never does. It's possible that the interpretation comes from Joseph's own sense of the inevitability of disaster. Contrast this with Abraham arguing with God about the destruction of Sodom, or Jacob's own wrestling with God at the fords of the Jabbok. Might not the dream have meant that if you are not careful, seven years of famine will follow the seven years of abundance? Might the dream have been a warning to care for the land rather than a warning to stockpile? Might things have been different if that other pattern of seven had been instituted, the sabbatical year? The dream may have been a gracious offer to step out of the logic of empire to a new way of living. But now we come to the end of Jacob's life. The brothers know Jacob's power, that he is one step from being a god. They think that all that kept Joseph from vengeance was that Jacob was still alive. And so they bow in fear, and Joseph responds in kindness. It seems as though the pattern is broken. A new future for the family seems possible. The brothers planned for their meeting with their brother. What if Joseph pays us back in full for all the wrong that we did to him? The first word translated here, what if, actually means if only. It expresses a wish. The sentence actually reads, if only Joseph would pay us back. The brothers seem to be hoping to clear their guilt through some kind of punishment. And the brothers take several steps of power of their own. Their first words to Joseph speak of a command issued by your father before he died. Note, your father, not our father. They have distanced themselves from Joseph, denying that they are in fact brothers. 
And the brothers retreat still further. They speak of the crime of the servants of the God of your father. What an amazing reference to themselves in the third person. I think it's about four degrees of separation they have there. While they quote their father's reference to Joseph as their brothers, they do not name themselves or their relationship to Joseph or Jacob. They do not invoke their common bond. The brothers remain locked in fear. They cannot fully own their own abusive ways. They cannot fully name their crime. And Joseph weeps, as he has done so many times before, and the brothers fall weeping before him. Joseph's earliest dream is fulfilled. And in those tears lie all those years of pain and loss and guilt and rage. Can you not hear Jacob holding that coat and calling, Wake up, Joseph. Can you not hear Reuben doing the same when he discovered Joseph sold off? Can you not hear Jacob dreaming of having to sing that song again when he found out that Benjamin would have to go to Egypt? Can you not hear Judah singing that song when it seemed Benjamin would be punished? Joseph. Joseph. What was his song all those years in Egypt? Whom did he wish to have wake up? Or did he sing songs of death and revenge? Joseph finally acknowledges that he is not in the place of God. Punishment is not his to impose. And it looks at first as if God's grace created the space to end the cycle of retaliation and abuse, setting everyone free. But, but, what I wanted to hear in this story more than anything else is repentance from Joseph. And all of this got me thinking again of 9-11 and inevitability. I remember clearly the day that the bombing of Afghanistan began. It was Canadian Thanksgiving weekend, and I was angry. How was I to give thanks while watching B-52s doing figure eights at 35,000 feet over Afghanistan. I was with someone that weekend who did not my, share my sense of the ironies of that event. And I recall now with significant distress the violence of my verbal response to him. Let's just say that the repair of that relationship has taken a while. But I've continued to carry anger at the response to 9-11, a response that had the flavor of inevitability. What can follow from such violence other than the exacting of revenge? It's an ancient story, the story of taking life justified by other losses of life. Everyone engaged in the current wars roots the ongoing engagement in this narrative. Everyone's violence flows from violence done to them. In the larger arc of, Joseph, of the Joseph story, in fact, almost the entire arc of the biblical story seems to reflect that narrative. Joseph abuses his brothers. The brothers sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph creates a system of oppression related to food. Joseph's family suffers under the famine and comes seeking help. Joseph abuses his brothers again. Jacob dies, and the brothers expect more of the same. 
a new pharaoh orders the death of Hebrew sons. The firstborn sons of the Egyptians die at God's hands. The Hebrews plunder Egypt and escape. The Egyptian army is destroyed at the Red Sea. The Hebrews enter the promised land and destroy cities and people. Kings oppress the people. And the Assyrian and Babylonian empires destroy the land and take the people into exile. And the Greek and Roman empires, in their own turn, oppress the descendants of Jacob. Does the end of that story flow from the beginning? If so, is it a story of causality and inevitability? Or is it a story where at each step, God graciously invites a response not locked into the pattern? Did the dream predict an inevitable famine? Or was it a gracious invitation to a new kind of economic life? Bishop N.T. Wright has argued that the major arc of the biblical story is one of exile and homecoming. I just outlined the series of exiles. In between were the homecomings. Jacob's family finds a home in Egypt and safety from starvation for a while. The children of Israel leave Egypt and find a home in the promised land for a while. Jeremiah calls God's people to make their home in exile for a while. And God's people return from exile in Persia to rebuild the land and the city for a while. Wright goes on to argue that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the final homecoming from the final exile. If Joseph and his brothers were unable to break the cycle of victimization, if none of them were fully able to name the truth of their violence and deception, and so enter fully into repentance and forgiveness, the door is opened in Jesus. And while I am permanently, or seem permanently, unable to make sense of the cross, I continue to affirm that in some way it changes things. Something of the old is wiped away, and a new becomes possible. And that new is, in part, the possibility of honesty about our own brokenness and the possibility of forgiving the brokenness of others. And surely the first step is lament. There were hints of that in the Joseph story. Tears were shed. But note also that what reconciliation there was, partial though it was, depended on seeing each other's faces. When Joseph's brothers showed up in Egypt, the text says that Joseph wept. But the description is of a man wailing in pain. Here was the first step forward. Or consider the encounter between Jacob and Esau, an encounter also with many tears shed. In the moment of reconciliation, Jacob says that to see the face of Esau is to see the face of God. There's, I think, a lesson here. The tears, the laments for the lost years all take place in the context of meeting face-to-face. In meeting face-to-face, the protagonists in these stories wake up. And in our waking up is the possibility that we can participate in the waking up of others. So what then would it mean for us to wake up? Two stories. Carolyn Schrock-Schenk, who many of you know, is a longtime peace activist. Shortly after the start of the war in Afghanistan, 
she was part of a protest in Goshen, Indiana. And shortly after that, Dana Schmucker, whose son was in the army and was deployed in Afghanistan, wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper, objecting to the attitudes of many protesters and asking if the protesters had any idea of the pain their words and actions caused people like her. She asked for prayers rather than criticism. In response, Carolyn contacted Dana and they got together to talk. And out of their conversation came a joint letter to the editor. They noted that while they still disagreed on some things, they agreed on other things. And most profoundly, they said that their meeting would change how they spoke on the issues. They said, and just as significantly, we found the basis for respecting each other on those issues where we disagree. Another story. One of the effects of 9-11 was the identification of Islam as the enemy, followed by deterioration in how Muslims are treated in the relations between Christians and Muslims. In 2009, Hartsong Church near Memphis, Tennessee, heard that a mosque was going to be built across the street. As the pastor tells it, that called for southern hospitality, and up went the sign. Hartsong Church welcomes Memphis Islamic Center to the neighborhood. Conversations began. Friendships developed. And we come to fall 2010. The mosque was not finished but Ramadan was coming. And the folks from the mosque asked the folks in the church about the use of a classroom for Ramadan prayers for a few evenings. The folks in the church offered their sanctuary, one of those auditorium-like multi-purpose spaces perfect for the Muslim form of gathered prayer. The offer was for the whole of Ramadan with church folks as greeters to welcome their Muslim friends and direct them to the prayer space. The church folks are pretty clear that this is what God, God called them to. For them, this was about following Jesus. The next thing coming is a park using land that each faith community is contributing from their current properties. In a recent commentary, John Paul Lederach, another longtime peacemaker, reflected on the events of 9-11. He said this, If 9-11 changed anything for me, it was to find my way back to the essence of peacebuilding. The profound truth of Jesus' life came home in the form of his simplest yet most radical act, befriend your enemy. We find this in Jesus' response to people who his closest disciples found unacceptable. He ate with his enemies. He went to their houses, and he invited them in. None of this implied that he changed his fundamental beliefs or values. It implied that he reached out and built relationships with those deemed untouchable and a threat. He chose love over fear, engagement over isolation and separation. What endures since 9-11 is the need to build relationships across our perceived divisions with those who see the world differently and, most importantly, with those whom we may most fear." End of quote. 
So I will continue to call us to weep over the 160,000 or more who have died in the paroxysms of violence of the last 10 years. I will continue to call us to weep over our own failures to love. And I will continue to, to invite myself and all of us gathered here to meet face to face with our enemies. Who knows? It may be that both my enemies and I will be able to say that to see your face is to see the face of God. Or maybe not. Maybe only I will learn from the experience. Maybe my enemy will refuse to meet me face to face. But I suspect that that is irrelevant to the command to love. Is it not time to wake up? Is it not time to allow Jesus to take us by the hand and lead us home out of our exile? Home to the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Home to repentance. Home to forgiveness. Home to care for all of those broken by the last 10 years. Home to our true selves. Home to relationships with those who see the world differently, those whom we fear. Is it not time to wake up? And while there is little that I know, I know this. God loves us with an extravagant love that does indeed wake us from the dead and sustains us in the new kingdom, in the newness of the kingdom of which we are now citizens. Jesus, Jesus, help me. Tell me, tell me the story, the one about eternity and the way it's all going to be. Wake up there. 